Good morning. morning. It's good to see all of you here. Thank you for coming. Braving the wet weather to be with us this morning. Maybe by the time that we're done today, it'll be drier out there when you leave. We'll hope for that. Uh, But we're excited that you're here and that you have joined us this morning for worship. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please take them and turn with me once again to the book of Genesis and to chapter 45. Genesis 45. We are going to cover a rather large portion of Scripture today. Uh, larger than I would normally like to cover necessarily in one sermon. Uh, but nevertheless, I hope to be able to show you that the broad focus of our, our uh, text today is necessary. We're going to pick up in chapter 45 and in verse 16. And if I can just briefly reset the context for you. Last week we came to the conclusion of, a, of a, an extended section of, of, of Scripture in which Moses has been communicating to us the reconciliation that occurred between Joseph and his brothers, uh, the ten older brothers who had sold him into slavery. And we read about those brothers' repentance in the last part of chapter 44. And then we read of Joseph's forgiveness of them in the first part of chapter 45. One significant part of this story, though, we have not gotten to yet, and that is the reunion that occurs between Joseph and his father, Jacob. And we're going to read about that reunion today. It actually occurs in chapter 47. And truthfully, we might expect that, at least I did, we expect that that would receive a pretty major part of the text, that Moses would devote quite a bit of attention to that reunion as it occurs between the father and the son. After all, it was the great love that that Jacob had for Joseph that served as the crux for why the ten older brothers got jealous of him and sold him into slavery to begin with. Not only that, but it's been 20, 22, 23 years since the two of them have ever laid eyes on one another. So that reunion, from my perspective, should probably gain a lot of ink, as it were, in the Scriptures. But, as we'll read, actually it doesn't get that much ink at all. In fact, the dominant theme of our passage is not the reunion between Jacob and his son Joseph. It is actually what gets the majority of attention in our text is the relocation of Israel and all of his family to Egypt. And honestly, that intrigued me. As a matter of fact, I wrote, I decided to share with you just one of my own little thoughts as I was writing and studying this passage to begin with. On my legal pad next to the Bible as I was reading this, I wrote, I expected Moses to spend more time on the reunion of Joseph and Jacob. But instead, it appears that he is more concerned with the relocation of Israel to Egypt. Why? Well, a cursory thought, I think, may be this, is to remember that it is Moses who is writing these words. This is the same Moses who led the children of Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus and was overseeing them as they were preparing to go in and and take possession of the promised land. This is the same Moses who writes here, and he is writing to that generation that he had led out of Egypt. He's writing to them so that they might know, they might know that it was God who had, in the fulfillment of his promises to Abraham, their father, that he had brought Israel to Egypt to begin with and that he had brought them there in order to give them time to form as a nation and to strengthen and in order to preserve them. God made that promise to Abraham over 200 years before the passage that we're going to read this morning occurred. God said to Abram back in Genesis chapter 15, he says, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, that's Egypt, 
and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. And afterward they shall come out with great possessions. He goes on to tell him, but in the fourth generation you shall return here. They shall return here to Canaan. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So what we can say is that if the Exodus is the story of how God delivered His people from Egypt, then as we'll see from our story this morning, this text is about how God got His people to Egypt to begin with. And as such, the long view of this text really lifts the veil and allows us to see the work of God's sovereignty and the work of His providence, particularly as it relates to Israel's preservation. And that revelation for us That revelation should provide us with hope, particularly when we're going through those sometimes very hard and difficult times to understand in our own lives. When we're going through moments in our own life where we don't quite understand what God is doing, this passage, I believe, should give us encouragement as believers. Now, if you were with us last week, you know that Joseph and his brothers, all the identity of Joseph has been revealed and there's been a much hugging and and weeping and crying and talking among one another. And then beginning in verse 16, Pharaoh gets in on the act. So let's pick up there in verse 16. Now the report of it was heard in Pharaoh's house saying, Joseph's brothers have come. So it pleased Pharaoh and his servants well. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this, load your animals and depart and go to the land of Canaan. Bring your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you will eat of the fat of the land. Now you are commanded, do this, take carts out of the land of Egypt for your little ones and your wives and bring your father and come and do not be concerned about your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Then the sons of Israel did so and Joseph gave them carts according to the command of Pharaoh and he gave them provisions for the journey. He gave to all of them, to each man, changes of garments, but to Benjamin he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. And he sent to his father these things, 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt. And ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and food for his father for the journey. So he sent his brothers away, and they departed. And he said to them, see that you do not become troubled along the way. Literally, it reads, do not quarrel. Then they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to Jacob, their father. And they told him, saying, Joseph is still alive, and he is governor over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart stood still because he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words which Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob, their father, revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And then God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night. And he said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. And so he said, I am the God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there. And I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. Then Joseph arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father, Jacob, their little ones and their wives, and the carts which Pharaoh had sent to carry them. And they, so they took their livestock and their goods, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan, and went to Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants with him. 
his sons and his sons' sons, his daughters and his sons' daughters and all his descendants, he brought with him to Egypt. Now these were the names of the children of Israel. Jacob and his sons who went to Egypt. Reuben was Jacob's firstborn. The sons of Reuben were Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. The sons of Simeon were Jemuel and Jamin, Ohad, Jacob, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi were Gershon and Kohath and Merari. And the sons of Judah were Ur and Onan and Shelah and Perez and Zerah. But Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. The sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. The sons of Ishakar were Tola and Puvah and Job and Shimron. The sons of Zebulun were Sered and Elon and Jahlil. And the, these were the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Padan Aram with his daughter Dinah. And all the persons, his sons and his daughters, were 33. The sons of Gath were Ziphion and Haggai, Shuni, Esbon, Eri, Arodi, and Areli. And the sons of Asher were Jemna, Ishua, Isui, Beriah, and Sarah, their sister. And the sons of Berea were Heber and Malkiel. These were the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, the daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. And the sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, were Joseph and Benjamin. And to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipheri, priest of On, bore to him. The sons of Benjamin were Belah and Besher and Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Muppim and Huppim and Ard. Wouldn't you love to have been there when the birth certificates came across your desk? These were the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The son of Dan was Hushim. The son of Naphtali was Jaziel, Guni, Jezer, and Shelem. These were the sons of Bilhah whom Laban gave to Rachel his daughter, and she bore these to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons who went with Jacob to Egypt, who came from his body besides Jacob's son's wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two persons. All the persons of the house of Jacob who went to Egypt were 70. Then he sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out before him the way to Goshen. And they came to the land of Goshen. So Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. And he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. And Israel said to Joseph, Now, let me die since I have seen your face because you are still alive. Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, my brothers and those of my father's house who were in the land of Canaan have come to me and the men are shepherds for their occupation has been to feed livestock and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. So it shall be when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation that you shall say, your servant's occupation has been with livestock from our youth even till now, both we and also our fathers that you may dwell in the land of Goshen for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Then Joseph went and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brothers and their flocks and their herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan, and indeed they are in the land of Goshen. And he took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. And they said to Pharaoh, We have come to dwell in the land because your servants 
have no pasture for their flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now, therefore, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. And then Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, saying, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Have your father and your brothers dwell in the best of the land and let them dwell in the land of Goshen. And if, I love this, if you know any competent man among them, then make them chief herdsmen over my livestock. Then Joseph brought in his father and Jacob, and he set him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their pilgrimage. So Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from before Pharaoh. And Joseph situated his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And then Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with bread according to the number in their families. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you've given it to us. You've, we're grateful that we have copies of it in our hands that we can read and that it comes from you and that we can spend time reading it and understanding it and then applying it to our lives. I pray that that would happen this morning for our good and for your glory. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So because we are dealing with such a large text this morning, you'll be happy to know I'm not going to comment on every single verse. I know many of you have a collective sigh of relief with regard to that. I do want us to just divide it into chunks, though, significant big chunks that will allow us to understand the fullness of what we are being communicated in this rather long section. And each chunk is going to get one word heading. And the first heading that I provided for you there is this word. It's the word return. Return. And it's the, it, it really covers the last part of chapter 45. Uh, it's the brothers return to Canaan that we read about in that section. And what a return it was. You'll remember that all of Joseph's brothers had come back down to Egypt. And they had, including Benjamin, his youngest brother, they had all left uh, to come to Egypt weeks before, likely, because of the great famine that was taking place. They had empty stomachs. They had empty bags of grain. They needed to go down and fill again. And they were coming to get food from Egypt. But then after the events of the first part of, of chapter 45 that we read about last week, we, we see that they returned home with so much more than just grain. They returned home with more than just food. In fact, these brothers are now the beneficiaries of, of, of Pharaoh's real true love and affection for their brother Joseph. They not only went home with grain, but they also carried with them a command to go get their father and go get all of their families and, and bring them back from the land which has no food to the place where the food that they're coming to get is supplied. In other words, relocate, come back down to, to Egypt. And so Pharaoh had promised, look, if you'll come back down here and bring all of your family, I'll give you the best of the land of Egypt. And to assist them in that endeavor, he gives them his own royal carts. He says, take these carts back up to your homeland. Load, every, load all of your family up, those that can't travel. Put them on the carts and bring them back down with you. And such news had to be wonderful. In, in many respects, it's almost too good to be true. These brothers had traveled to Egypt simply hoping to get Simeon, their brother who had been detained there. They wanted to get him back and they wanted to buy more grain. But instead, they had come to realize that their brother Joseph was actually still alive. And not only that, but he was the right-hand man of the most powerful man in the ruler in the known world. 
who, by the way, had just promised to give them the best spot to live in in all of Egypt. The only thing that I think would have likely created a general knot in all of those brothers' stomachs was that they were going to have to go back and face their daddy. And when they went back and had to face their daddy, they tell them that Joseph was alive. That meant they were going to have to own up to the fact that they had not been exactly truthful with him for the previous 20-some-odd years with regard to what happened to their brother. They were going to have to tell him that he truly had not been torn apart by a wild beast as they had led him to believe. And in fact, he was still alive. And I can only imagine that that probably caused just a little bit of consternation in them. In fact, they probably might have been even tempted to argue with one another. I can imagine Reuben. Reuben said, I didn't want us to sell him to begin with. Judah, that was your idea. You need to be the one that tells daddy. And Judah's like, wait a minute. I'm the one that just stepped up and decided to take Benjamin's place. Benjamin, you tell him. He likes you best anyways. And so the whole trip could have, could have degenerated into a bunch of back and forth, which is why I think we read the little tidbit there that Joseph tells his brothers, do not become troubled along the way. Do not quarrel with one another. He knew, even though his brothers had been repentant, he still knew who his brothers were. And so he tells them, do not quarrel with one another along the way. What's interesting to me is, is when I'm reading through this passage, I want to hear how they own up to the lie. I want to hear how they actually tell them that, look, Dad, we, we were sorry. Moses doesn't record it. He doesn't give us that bit of information. In, in fact, all Moses reveals to us, according to verse 26, is that they told Jacob that Joseph is still alive. And he's governor over all the land of Egypt. Furthermore, we don't hear what Jacob says in return to them. Jacob obviously would have had a lot of questions. He would have had a lot of follow-up things. There's times when I would go and tell my dad something, hoping he wouldn't ask me any follow-up questions. But the follow-up questions always came. We don't get any of those follow-up questions here. And I want to know what they were. But Moses doesn't tell us. All Moses says is that Jacob's heart stood still. Because he did not believe them. The NIV says that he was stunned. The ESV says that he, his heart was numb. One commentator surmises that, that Jacob might have even had a mild heart attack at, the, at the, the news that his son was still alive. It was too great for him to believe. In fact, he doesn't believe his sons until he goes out of his tent and he sees all of those carts with Pharaoh painted down the side of them and all of the goods that were loaded on top of it. And then the chapter ends with Jacob declaring these words, Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go see him before I die. You know what's interesting about Jacob? If you go back to chapter 37, just about every conversation, everything that you hear Jacob say always centers around his death. He always talks about going down to death. His gray hair is going to go down to death. Here he's like, well, now I can die because now I know I'm going to go see him before I die. Everything that Jacob talks about is his death. We're going to continue to see that as we work our way through this. But what we see is that Jacob is now prepared for him and his family to move to Egypt. If any of you have ever moved, you know what, how stressful that can be. Three years ago, right now, my parents were packing up and were moving from Gainesville, where we had lived, where they had lived for the previous 34 years, down to Flowery Branch so that they could be closer to the church, closer to me and my family. At the exact same time that they were packing up their boxes, Caroline and I were packing up boxes at our home because we were moving from the house we lived in Tequila to move to the house we had just purchased in Beaufort. 
at the exact same time that my parents were packing and I was packing at home, we were packing up our church offices to move them out of those offices right up front to the house that's right up in front of us. And let me just tell you, there came a point where in the fall of 2016, when I would get up, I got up in a strange house, went and visited my parents in a strange house and went to a strange office. And everything was in boxes and we couldn't find anything. And it was, everything was overturned and, and, and disheveled. If you've ever been there, then I think you can probably begin to identify a little bit with what it must have been like for this family, this large family, to get everything that they had, all of their kids, all of their, all of their necessary possessions, and to move and to make the trek from Canaan to Egypt. And it is that kind of a, a, a seriousness of the moment that I think propels Jacob to do what he does beginning in the chapter 46. Notice what we read there. The second, the second heading I have for you is the word reassurance. Reassurance. You see, Moses refers to Jacob not by the name Jacob here. He refers to him as Israel. And, and he says Israel begins the leg of his journey down to, to Egypt, but he stops first in the land of Beersheba. And Beersheba was on the southwestern edge of the land of Canaan, of the, of the promised land. It would have been on the way to Egypt. But as long as, as long as Jacob remained in Beersheba, he remained in the promised land. As long as he stayed there, he was okay. But as soon as he left Beersheba and continued traveling southwest, he would leave the promised land behind. And doing such a thing brought great fear to Jacob. I mean, after all... If you go back and you read in Genesis, you'll find that Abram himself, Abraham, had also left the land of Canaan during the time of a famine and gone to Egypt, and God was displeased with him for doing so because he had not shown faith in staying in the land that he had given him. Well, now it's Jacob's turn. There's a famine in the land, and, and he's been invited to come and live in Egypt, and he's right now on the edge where if he steps over and goes, he's leaving the land of promise, and he had a great fear within him, and so he stops to pray, and he stops to offer offerings to the Lord. And it is at this point that the Lord calls to him in verse 2, and he says to him, Jacob, Jacob, and he says, here I am. And then God says, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt. That means he was very fearful to do what he had in front of him to do. But God says to him, I will make of you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. You notice the four phrases there, the four clauses that, that, that undergird the reassurance for, for Jacob to make that move. The first thing he says, I'm going to make of you a great nation there in Egypt. I'm going to make of you a great nation. That had been the promise that God had given to Abram at the very beginning. He was going to form from him a great nation. He had repeated and reiterated that over and over and over again. He had even reiterated it and repeated it to Jacob himself. But the key to this is, is he said, I'm going to make for you a great nation there. Not here in the land of promise, but it's going to be there in Egypt. That's the first reassurance. The second one says this, I, I will go down with you to Egypt. God, God promised his presence to be with Jacob on the journey. It's not just going to be you that goes down there. It's not just going to be your family. I will go with you there. And that tells us is that God's not confined to territorial constraints. God can move with us wherever we go. 
He can be with us no matter where we, He calls us to go. God will go with us. He'll go before us. He'll come behind us. He will always be with us. The third thing He says is, I will surely bring you up again. Now, Jacob's always talking about dying. Well, God says, look, you will die there, but you're not going to stay there. Your bones will be brought back and you will be buried in the land of promise right alongside your grandfather and right alongside your father. Do not think that you'll be abandoned to a foreign land. No, I will be with you and I will bring you back. And then finally, he's always thinking that his death is going to be something horrible and, and sorrowful and his gray hair is going to go down to Sheol and all those kind of things. And God says to him, no, no, Joseph will put his hands on your eyes. That's a, really a, a euphemistic way of saying you're going to die peacefully and your favored loving son is going to be there to be able to close your eyes in death. So those are four ways that God reassures Jacob that this trip from Canaan to Egypt is a necessary thing and that he's going to be with him. So with that assurance... In his, in his mind, Moses tells us that Jacob arose from Beersheba and the sons of Israel carried their father, Jacob, their little ones and their wives and their carts, which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. And they went to Egypt, Jacob, and all his descendants with him. Now, here's the word that I want you to focus in on there. It's the word all. All of his descendants. He didn't leave some behind to sort of hold the fort down and wait till the rest of us get back. He didn't leave a, a, a small trove of his descendants there to sort of keep a foothold in the land of promise. No, Jacob trusted God and all of his descendants left the promised land and went to Egypt. Now, he goes on to tell us all the names of his descendants. And I know as you're sitting there listening to me read those names, you're going, why are we, why are we focusing in on those names? We don't know who those people are. Why is that important? It may not be so important to me and you, but remember, it's Moses who's writing this. And Moses is writing to a later generation of Israelites who could trace their lineage back to these people. They could find out what tribe they were from based upon these names. Not only could they find out what tribe, what clan were they a part of. They could hear about the fact that these were their great-great-grandfathers and grandmothers who came down, and so they wanted to know who these people were. But here's the real kicker. You remember that when, when we says that all of them came down, do you remember the promise that God had made to Abraham to begin with? He says to him, I will make of you a great nation. And then he goes on to tell him, you're, the number of your descendants will outnumber the stars of the sky. The number of your descendants will outnumber the sand on the seashore. When God made that promise to Abram, do you know how many descendants Abram had at that point? Zero. None. Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Here's the point. This is, this is about 200, 300 years later and the only descendants that fall underneath God's promises total up to about 70. That's still, that's better than none, but it's still not greater than the stars of the sky. It's still not more numerous than the sands on the seashore. What it tells us is that God was bringing that 70, the names of which we are given here, and he was taking them to Egypt, and there they would grow, and they would multiply, and they would grow, and they would multiply, and they would grow, and they would multiply. And remember, what, what these 70 did not know 
Moses did know, and so did the generation that he had led out of Egypt, is that as they grew there in Egypt, their number would ultimately grow to the point that by the time that Moses led that generation out of Egyptian bondage, that number had grown to over 2 million people. What we understand is that God, what God promised Jacob back there in verse 3, that he would make of him a great nation there, he followed through and was faithful and did exactly that. He made them a great nation in Egypt. So we've witnessed the return of the brothers to Canaan, and now we have witnessed the reassurance that God gives Jacob to travel to Egypt. That ends us there and brings us then to where we see the reunion that takes place. That's the third point that I want you to note, reunion. This is what I thought would have been the number one point all along. But in fact, it's only two verses. That's all Moses gives us is two verses. Joseph made ready his chariot in verse 29 of chapter 46 and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. And he presented himself to him, fell on his neck, wept on his neck a good while. And Israel said to Joseph, let me die. There he, he's back to death again. Let me die since I have seen your face because you are still alive. And that's it. After 22 years, that's all we get. That's all Moses gives us. Now, there's a lot more that's there, honestly, and we can imagine what that reunion was like, and there's nothing wrong with doing that. But Moses does not want us to get sidetracked from the primary thing of which he's telling us. The most important detail of this entire section is that Israel and all of his family is relocating to Egypt. And so, we've seen the return to the Canaan. God reassures Jacob. Now he's reunited with Joseph. That brings us to the fourth point. And the fourth point is this, relocation. We finally get to the point that Moses has been driving us. Relocation. As soon as the reunion is over with, Joseph goes back into the administrator manager mode and he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go remind Pharaoh that all of you guys are here and I'm going to tell him what your occupation is, that, you're all about, that you're all, your vocation is that of, of, of being shepherds and feeding livestock. And then he goes on and instructs his family, look, when Pharaoh talks to you, you make sure that he knows that you're shepherds and that your vocation is to feed livestock. Now, why is that such an important distinction? Well, the last verse of chapter 46 tells us that Jacob's motivation in reiterating his family's vocation was that they might dwell in the land of Goshen and then for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Here's the whole point. Joseph wanted to ensure that his family got the best land in Egypt, which is what Pharaoh had promised. And he wanted the land of Goshen, which was the fertile area to the eastern side of the Nile River. It was a perfect place to raise cattle and to raise sheep. And it was to the farthest edges of Egypt. And so in going there, they would be able, his family would be able to overcome the famine that was taking place throughout the rest of the region. They could raise their livestock as they had been accustomed to doing. They would be able to stay away from the Egyptians that, that were pagan, idol-worshiping Egyptians in the, in the more city-dwelling area. And because they looked down upon foreigners and because they looked down upon shepherds, there would be a natural separation that would take place. And God's whole point of doing that was so that this great nation could be incubated within the country and within the confines of Egypt. And God was working every bit of that out with Joseph's direction in bringing them there. Now, we get to the end 
you find that Jacob blesses Pharaoh. Pharaoh is blessed because Jacob does that in verse 7 and in verse 10. And then we find that Joseph situated his fathers and his brothers and he gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. So what do we do with this big old long passage? Some of you are going, well, I wish you'd quit it. It's what I wish we would do. How are we to understand it? How are we to apply it? We have to pull the camera angle back for just a moment and think about it from this perspective. Moses is writing this information so that those that he had led out of the Egyptian slavery could learn their history so that they could recognize that after over 400 years of bondage, they were there because it had been the same God that had overseen their exodus was the same God that had overseen their entrance into Egypt to begin with many, many years earlier. And that it had all rested upon God's promise to their forefather, Abraham. God had promised him, this is how it's going to come about. And in his providence and in his sovereignty, God had worked those details out to occur exactly as he said that they would. And just imagine the great confidence and the great encouragement that that would have given to a group of individuals who were wandering around in the desert waiting for the moment that they would go back and repossess the land. They would go in as possessors, not as the patriarchs had been who were strangers in the land of Canaan. No, God was going to take them in to possess the land. And they no doubt were wondering, why are we wandering around? Why, how are we going to go in and dispossess all of these Canaanites? And this chapter right here, this whole section, would have encouraged them to recognize, look, your confidence is not in yourself. Your confidence is not to be in your abilities to understand everything. Your confidence is not that you will be able to make anything happen. Your confidence is that God will cause it to take place because He is the faithful one. He is the one who will accomplish what He does. My guess is this. My guess is there are some of you who are sitting out there this morning and you need to learn the same lesson from this text. You see, there are some that I would imagine that recognize that where God has got you right now and the circumstances that you're facing and the things that you're going through don't really make a lot of sense. You can't see exactly what God's been doing in the past and you certainly have no idea where he's leading you in the future. Here's what I want you to know. Your confidence is not in your ability to understand all those things. Your confidence is to be placed in the God who is faithful to his promises and will always do exactly what he says he will do. And then even when you don't understand it, your hope and your peace rests in him. And that's what leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning. It's a 20,000 foot sermon in a sentence. It comes from way up here, but this is it. Our hope and our peace ultimately rests in God's faithfulness to fulfill his promises even when we do not understand his method. You know, I think about Joseph, 20, 22 years, separated from his father, languishing in Egypt. How many times do you think he wondered, God, what are you doing? How long? Is this ever going to work out? I think of Jacob. Jacob, who was faced with the odds of 
130 years old, I've got to leave everything that I've ever known that's ever been, ever been familiar to me to go to a land that doesn't even speak my language? God, is, is that what you want me to do? I think, I think about some of these names that we read, people that we don't know anything about, but I would imagine for some it was not only fearful, it probably seemed nonsensical to actually pick up and leave. And then for those that were wandering out there in the desert, can you only imagine what it must have been like for them? Many of them, the Bible says, they would have rather gone back to Egypt because at least they knew what was there. But throughout this whole thing, God is saying, your peace and your hope doesn't rest in your understanding and your ability to figure it all out. Your peace and your hope rest in the fact that you have a God who is working everything out for your good and for His glory. And even when you can't understand His methods, you can understand and know who He is. If you're a Christian here this morning and your faith has been firmly placed in the Lord Jesus Christ and He is your Savior, I want you to know you can take that same courage today. You can be encouraged by this passage that happened all these many thousands of years ago because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He still works exactly the same. His promises are still absolutely yes and amen to all of His children. And so that which He has promised you, you can take confidence and you can take comfort and you can take hope in. God always fulfills His promises even when you don't understand what He's doing and how. If you are not a Christian, if you have never trusted in Christ to be your Lord and your Savior, this passage is for you too. Because understand that everything that God did here, He did so that He would ultimately bring the Savior of the world out of Egypt, as it says in Matthew's Gospel, and bring Him to the fore there in Jerusalem where He was ultimately stretched out on a cross and died for your sins and for my sins. Sinners like you and I have no other hope except in Jesus Christ. And this is part of the story about how God revealed His Savior and ultimately provided us with salvation and with hope. And so regardless of who you are, you find yourself this morning just as these people found themselves at the intersection of do I trust God or do I not? Do you trust God? Do you trust that your only source of hope comes in Jesus Christ whom He has sent? Or do you not? And if you're facing situations that you don't understand, do you trust God? Or do you not? At the end of the day, wherever you are in your life, God is calling you to steps of faith. To steps of understanding Him, trusting Him that He will guide every step you take. And you will not always know where those steps will lead you, but you can be confident that God will always keep His promises and His faith and faith in Him will be the thing that gives you your ultimate hope and your peace. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God and it is for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Our Father, we thank You for Your goodness. Thank You for Your love and Your mercy and thank You for watching over us. Thank You for orchestrating things in our lives that are far beyond our ability to even understand or imagine. And Lord, I have no doubt that there are those that are in this room this morning that are struggling with various places where they are. Many of them are caught at that intersection of do they trust in you or do they not? My prayer today is that by your Holy Spirit, you might speak to them in the middle of the chaos that is their lives right now. And that you might calm them with the understanding that you are God and that you are in control, that you're sovereign. 
especially if, if they are your children and you have called them to yourself, that they can rest in you and they can trust you, even when they don't understand what's going on around them. Lord, for those that may be here this morning that have never placed their faith in you, Father, you're calling them right now to a recognition that you are the sovereign God of, of, of all this universe. And I pray that they might come to realize that it is only through your Son that salvation is possible. May they be drawn to you by your Holy Spirit. And may they see that you were working in their lives long before this moment ever came about. So increase our faith this morning. Help us to follow you. Help us to recognize your hand in guiding our lives. This I pray in Christ's name. Amen.